Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening. We thank you for the present freedoms that we enjoy, for this time that we can set aside to be good stewards of the time that you've given to us, and that we can gather together in fellowship and in the study of your word and this time of prayer together. And we just pray that as we continue this study into this most important field of uh, theology, that this will be a time of fruitful understanding. Uh, that we will be able to take the truths that we learn and to apply them to our lives and to grow thereby. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me switch over and go live on Facebook. We'll get that going. All right, and I'm going to switch our view here. I'm going to switch over to Logos so I can get started with that. And I think I think we're live on Facebook. Dan, are we a green light? Do you know? Yeah, we're good. Yeah, okay. We're good. All right. Well, we are picking up in our continued study on the subject of soteriology, and soteriology is the study of salvation. Uh, and this is a very important biblical subject and touches on a lot of things. Once we get through with this section here, we're going to jump into the three members of the Godhead that impact us and play a role in our salvation. So we'll do some uh, analysis of the doctrine of the Trinity and look at God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit and the uh, biblical weight of evidence that demonstrates that, uh, that all three are uh, the members of the Godhead. And so we will do biblical analysis on that and then talk about the role that each one plays in our salvation. <clears throat> so just to kind of give you a preview of where we're going. Now up to this point, well, in the last session, we talked about um, uh, the three phases of salvation. We talked about one, phase one, which is our justification. And justification it occurs at a moment in time. It is a one-and-done event in which the believer turns to Christ as Savior, believes in Christ, believes that Christ died for him or her, was buried, raised again on the third day, seen by many, and we turn to Christ and Christ alone as Savior. And we believe that what he accomplished at the cross is sufficient to satisfy every righteous demand of the Father and uh, to save us forever. And we are saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. Phase one is that saved from the penalty of sin. And that's a one and done thing. Once you, once you are born again, you're, you're done. You're, you're now into the Christian life. Phase two of the Christian life is um, being saved from the power of sin. This is our sanctification. Phase one is justification. Phase two is sanctification. Phase three is glorification. Uh, as believers, we are now in phase two of our salvation. And this refers to the life that we live from the moment of faith in Christ until we leave this world by death or by rapture. And we are advancing towards spiritual maturity. That's the goal, uh, is to grow up, to become mature Christians, to attain the spiritual high ground. And when we do that, this uh, maximizes God's glory. This glorifies God to the maximum edifies others to the maximum, and results in the best possible life that can be lived in this fallen world. And so it really is the best life to be lived. Uh, but we are, we are on a mission, and that is to advance to spiritual maturity. 
Uh, and then the final phase of our salvation is our glorification. And that's when we leave this world, again, either by death or by rapture, we enter into heaven. And at that time, we have a new body. If we are alive at the time of the rapture, our body will be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And uh, mortality will be swallowed up by immortality. And uh, Jesus Christ himself will transform our bodies uh, into, uh, into conformity with his body. We will have bodies like him because when we see him, we will see him just as he is and we know that he is without sin. Now, most of my ministry focuses on, on uh, phase two of the Christian life. Much of what I uh, work to accomplish as a, as a Bible teacher relates to the spiritual life. In fact, I wrote a book about 10 years ago called The Christian Life, A Study of Biblical Spirituality. And I've taught on uh, the spiritual life a number of times, and I'm always revising that. Now, certainly I share the gospel with people. If you know anything about me and my ministry, you know that I share the gospel message, you know, a lot. And I love to talk about uh, the cross of Christ. I love to talk about who is the Father, who is the Son, who is the Spirit, what was accomplished in time and space, and to share those things. Uh, but the main focus of my ministry effort is helping people to advance to, to maturity, to learn more about God, to learn more about His Word, and to know what God has blessed us with. Uh, one of the last things that I talked about last week was the best case scenario uh, for phase two is seen in the believer who lays hold of his spiritual blessings in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Who has blessed us. And so at the moment of salvation, we receive a package, a portfolio of spiritual assets that God gives to us at the moment of salvation. And uh, all of these things are on hold for us. Uh, all of these blessings and we just have to uh, lay hold of them. We have to grow into understanding what they are. And I've taught on these things. I've taught on our spiritual identity in Christ and what are the many blessings that God has given to us at the moment of salvation. But we need to grow into that. Now, when we're talking about phase two of the Christian life, we're talking about our sanctification, our walk with the Lord. Now, God has provided everything we need to live the successful Christian life. He has uh, he has given us directives in His Word. He's given us His Word, which directs us. And really, the Word of God speaks to all of our life. It speaks to uh, our thoughts. It speaks to our words. It speaks to our families. It speaks to us as husbands and wives, as parents and children. It speaks to us as employers or employees. Uh, it speaks to us as citizens of a country. Uh, it speaks to how we handle our finances. It really speaks to all of our life. And so it gives us direction on what is uh, the right life to be lived. Not only that, but we have a new nature. We are born again. We have a new nature. We said to be born again. And on top of that, according to 1 Corinthians 3.16, uh, God the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so we have uh, God the Holy Spirit here to guide us, uh, to illumine our minds, to help us to understand the biblical text and to advance in the Christian life. And so we have this, this wonderful uh, blessings, these wonderful blessings that are ours. And again, uh, Ephesians 1.3, it says that, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
So we have these and we need to lay hold of these and to understand what these are and to walk in them. We also have a responsibility to learn and to live God's word. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. It's beneficial to us. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. So we need the Word of God to teach us, to help us to understand how to live the righteous life that God calls us to live. And uh, it's not only a matter of learning it, there is an academic phase of it. In fact, what we're doing here is the first of a two-step process, because we have to learn the Word before we can live the Word. And that's why James 1.22, James says, but prove yourselves doers of the Word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And so we need to be able to apply the Word of God to our everyday, everyday life. And of course, Hebrews 6.1 tells us, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Let us press on to maturity. Now, the reality is, is that we cannot advance to maturity apart from the Word of God. Let me say that again. We cannot advance to maturity apart from the Word of God. And so we need the Word of God. We need it to help us to grow. This is why 1 Peter 2.2 2, Peter says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you might grow in respect to your salvation. That you might grow in respect to your salvation. In fact, you can't even live the life of faith without the word of God. The word of God is central to the walk of faith. Uh, And people talk about, you know, walking by faith, but then the word of God is nowhere resident in their thinking. And I think, okay, well, you really don't understand biblical faith. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You cannot even live by faith apart from the Word of God. The Word of God is foundational and central to our walk of faith. And faith is when we understand the Word, and we apply the Word. It's always that two-step process. I think of in Matthew 7, 24 and following, where Jesus said, the man who hears my words, hears that's intake of the word of, of God. The man who hears my words and does them, see, that's, that's the application, and does them, shall be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Now, it is possible to hear the word and not apply it. And this is why Jesus goes on. He says, but the man who hears my words and does not do it is like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And so there's always that two-step process of learning and living. And, uh, and that's why it's so important that we have that discipline of time, that we set aside that time to study the Word, and that we are conscious in the application of that Word to every aspect of our life. And I apply the Word of God constantly. Uh, and of course, there's, you know, there's times where I fail, times where I mess up, and I have to get up and rebound, confess my sin, get back into the, into the arena of life and whatever that happens to be but i apply the word of god to my work i apply the word of god to unbelievers you know galatians six ten says do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith i apply the word of god at my church i apply the word of god to unbelievers i share the gospel with them 
I apply the Word of God to pray for everybody because we're told to pray for one another, to love one another, to encourage one another, to build up one another. You have those uh, 65 references to the reciprocal pronoun all alone, those one another verses in the Bible. And so I apply the Word of God uh, across the board. In fact, I get to apply the Word of God tomorrow morning. Uh, Hebrews 10 makes it very clear that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. So I go and I attend fellowship at a nearby church. And uh, is it a perfect church? No, there is no such thing as a perfect church. Uh, That will never happen. But as a believer, I am directed to be in fellowship with other believers. And so I go and I participate, and I don't go with the attitude of what can I get out of it. I go with the attitude of what can I give to it. What can I do? How can I be a blessing? How can I serve? How can I impart something, be it a word of truth from the Lord, uh, be it a, a gift, a donation to help some somebody who's struggling or just to help meet the needs of the church because the church has uh, light bills and utility bills and and, uh, and so, you know, they need contributions to help keep the doors open. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I go and I participate in church fellowship. But these are all uh, applications of the Word of God. It's me taking the Word of God and plugging it into life and saying, how can I apply it to all aspects of my life? Because it's very important for me that as I advance to maturity, I am living the Christian life. And again, that's phase two of my salvation. That's me living the sanctified life, drawing more and more closer to God in my walk with Him in a life of obedience to His Word. And so, you know, that becomes a focus for me uh, in much of the ministry. But, But when we think about the Word of God and the time that we spend learning it, it must be applied. And that's my point. It just simply must be applied. So let me go ahead and jump back in the notes here, and we'll talk about uh, being saved from God's wrath, being saved from God's wrath. Now, being saved from God's wrath means that we will never experience eternal separation from Him in the lake of fire. In John 3.36, John said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Now, notice the unbeliever here. It says, but the wrath of God abides on him. By the way, you see uh, uh, words here, concept being, being set in opposition to each other. He who believes in the Son, he who believes in the Son, well, believes in the Son here, uh, this translates the Greek verb, pastuo. It's a present active uh, a participle here. Uh, but it's the pastuo. It's the word to believe. So the one who believes in the Son has, notice, eternal life. And uh, it says here, but, the, but he who does not obey the Son. Now, some get kind of wrapped around the axle here because they say, well, there's that word obey. Well, that's the command to believe. Uh, that is said in opposition to believing. So the one who does not obey, that is the directive to believe in the Son, uh, that one will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And by the way, when, you're, when, you're, when, you, when you understand that, that God's revelation is such that it places a responsibility upon the unbeliever, and this is through general revelation and most notably through special revelation, especially the revelation of the gospel. Uh, for example, uh, you'll look over here in John uh, 16, excuse me, Acts 16.31, but when God's revelation goes forth to the unbeliever, it places the unbeliever in a place of responsibility, such that the unbeliever is responsible for God, before God. 
But when, uh, when somebody comes into contact with the gospel message, one of the things that is clear is that the directive to believe is set forth as an imperative. It is set forth as a command, interestingly enough. And to give you an example of this, over in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, uh, just to kind of give you the short version here, it says, And after he brought them out, this would be the Roman jailer, he said to them, this would be Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now the answer came back in Acts 16.31, in which Paul said, Translated, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now the word believe here translates that same Greek word, pastuo, pastuo. But you'll notice here that this is that the, 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 the form of the verb is in the uh, it's in the er- it's an aorist active imperative. Now, uh, the active voice means the subject produces the action of the verb. The jailer here is given a directive, and the imperative mood is the mood of command. This is a command uh, given to the jailer, and the command is believe. Uh, and here, the object of faith is the Lord Jesus, and the benefit is, and you will be saved. But it is in the imperative mood. So when one encounters the gospel, it is set forth as a directive. And, uh, and, and this is just an example of this. So again, what I'm trying to emphasize here is just simply that, getting back to the notes, that being saved from God's wrath means that we will never experience eternal separation from him. Let's go on here. Let's look at our next passage. And this is really quite clear. Uh, where Paul said in Romans 5, 9, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So notice what we are saved from, because in this study here, we're, we're talking about saved from what? What is the Christian said to be saved from? Well, clearly we are saved from the wrath of God through him. And this because we have been justified by his blood. We have been justified by his blood. uh, And because of this, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Uh, Also, when writing to the Christians at Thessalonica, Paul assured them, per Thessalonians 1.10, that they would be saved from the wrath to come. Now, this passage here is uh, questionable. Uh, Because this last verse could refer to the eternal wrath that all unbelievers will experience because they have rejected Christ as Savior, which is the lake of fire, by the way. We've talked about that before. Revelation 20, verse 15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. However, when it talks here about being saved from the wrath to come in the 1 Thessalonians 1.10 passage, it could also refer to the wrath of the tribulation. And that also is a time of wrath that occurs in time and space. Now, when we think about the lake of fire, we think about uh, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire um, and the wrath of God at that time. But there is the wrath of God that is poured out during the time of the seven-year tribulation. So it could also refer to that. And that is the time where God will judge the world Uh, after the rapture of the church. So historically, when one studies prophecy, uh, when one studies biblical prophecy, if the rapture were to occur right now, all Christians would be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, all believers. In fact, for a brief 
time, maybe just a few seconds, I don't know, but there will be no unbelievers on the planet. There will be none whatsoever. And then during the time of the seven-year tribulation, there will be many people that will come to faith in Christ. Many people will be saved during the time of the tribulation. Now, some of those uh, believers will be martyred. They will be martyred. Uh, And then there will be believers who will survive the entire uh, period, the seven-year tribulation, who will uh, walk into the millennial kingdom. They will walk into the millennial kingdom. Now... um, But during that seven-year tribulation, that will follow the rapture of the church. So the rapture is the next prophetic event to occur, then the seven-year tribulation. You can read about that in Revelation chapters 6 through 18. Uh, Matthew 24 and 25 also talks about that time period. Uh, But then after the tribulation, you have the millennial kingdom, then you have the great white throne judgment, and then the eternal state. Uh, So again, it could refer the passage in 1 Thessalonians 1.10... Uh, it's questionable. It could refer to the eternal wrath of all unbelievers. However, it could also refer to the wrath of the tribulation. What's interesting, and I thought about it when I was putting these notes together, is that Christians living in the dispensation of the church age, that is the time in which we currently live, we will be spared from both forms of God's wrath. We are not going to see the future tribulation, and we will certainly not see uh, the lake of fire. That is something that will never, never happen to us. So um, for Christians living in the dispensation of the church age, uh, we will be spared from both forms of God's wrath, so there's no need uh, to be concerned with this. Now another thing that we are said to be saved from is Satan's domain of darkness. Now this is the transference that occurred at the moment of faith in Christ in which we, in which we were transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And so, as Christians, we are said to be saved from the dominion of Satan to God. That's what Acts uh, 26.18 communicates. Colossians 1.13 is another passage, and I've covered this on a number of occasions. But it says here, uh, But he, for he rescued us, and again, it's always that that one-way truth, uh, it is God who rescues or saves us, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But notice what we are saved from. We are saved from the domain of darkness. And so at the moment of faith in Christ, we are transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. That becomes a tra- that is a transference. None of us are felt that. It wasn't a feeling. It was a reality. It was something that took place at a point in time, at the moment of faith in Christ. We were rescued from this domain of darkness, and we were transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Now, this transference, going back to the notes here, happens at the moment of faith in Christ and is a spiritual reality that is true for all Christians. Now, the kingdom of Christ here, the subject of the kingdom in the Bible, is a very, very hot issue. Um, and if you study a lot of theology, you'll come to that. But the kingdom of Christ mentioned here does not refer to the future eschatological kingdom that will come, in which Jesus, a biological descendant of David, is prophesied to rule over the world in righteousness. That future event is the earthly millennial kingdom in which Jesus, after his second coming, Revelation 19, you can read about that, After his second coming, he will put down all rebellion. 
In fact, uh, we're told that the blood will run as high as the horse's bridle for several hundred miles into a cleft in the earth, and uh, God will call down for the birds of the sky to come and feed upon the flesh of kings and commanders and horses, And because when Christ comes back, he will put down all rebellion, and we think of the battle of Armageddon that will take place there, and that is putting down all human rebellion. But he will also put down all satanic and demonic rebellion. Because during the Millennial Kingdom, uh, if you read Revelation chapters 1 through 20, verses 1 through 3, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, Satan is arrested. There's an angel that comes down from heaven, and he comes down and he puts Satan in chains. Now, this is some form of angelic chains, uh, angelic handcuffs, we might call them. And Satan is then put into a, he's incarcerated, he's put into a spiritual prison where he is kept for a thousand years. And so... After Christ puts down all rebellion, uh, then Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, makes it very clear that he will reign uh, for 1,000 years. Now, that is the future eschatological kingdom. Eschatology is just simply a a word that's used in theology. It just simply means prophecy. It comes from the Greek word eschatos, or eschaton, that simply means final or end things. So when you're studying eschatology, you're studying final events or end things. Uh, you're talking about prophecy. And so when we talk about a future eschatological kingdom, we're simply talking about the future prophesied kingdom that will come, in which Jesus, a biological descendant of David, is prophesied to rule over the world in righteousness. Rather, this kingdom that is mentioned here, Colossians 1.13, uh, refers to this current spiritual kingdom where God rules in the hearts of his people. Now, concerning this passage, Charles Ryrie states, he says, quote, It refers to the kingdom in, into which all believers have been placed, and it is entered into by the new birth. The ruler is Christ. In this concept of the kingdom, he rules over believers only, and the relationship exists now, end quote. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, and here I'm citing from his book, um, the Footsteps of the Messiah, the Footsteps of the Messiah, it's a study of the sequence of prophetic events. He says, quote, the spiritual kingdom is composed of all believers and only believers of all time. The means of entering this kingdom is by regeneration by the Holy Spirit. He says, in the present age, from Acts 2 until the rapture, the spiritual kingdom and the church are synonymous, but only during the period between Acts 2 and the rapture, end quote. So, uh, again, we are said to be saved from Satan's domain of darkness. We are saved from that to, and by the way, it's always saved from something to something. If you're saved from the lake of fire, your heaven is your home, okay? So you are saved from something to something. Uh, Now, we are also said to be saved from the coming tribulation, from the coming tribulation, Uh, Jesus, when speaking to the church at Philadelphia, because remember there were seven churches mentioned in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and these are historical churches that existed uh, in Asia Minor, that existed uh, during the 1st and 2nd century AD, and you can read about them in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. I taught through Revelation a few years back. I think it was my third time, Uh, but nonetheless we covered that at that time. But Jesus, when he, was sp- when he was speaking to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10, he said, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, 
that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Excuse me. Now, the hour of testing here refers to the time of the future tribulation that follows the rapture of the church. Again, we're talking about, because if, if the rapture were to occur today, uh, then the next prophetic event that will occur will be the seven-year tribulation. And this, occurred, this begins when the Antichrist rises to power and he will uh, sign a seven-year contract agreement with unbelieving Israel in the land. Now listen, all the world stage is set right now for the rapture to occur. I'm, I'm looking day by day for the Lord to come at any time. And, uh, and it's, it's very imminent, but, but there has to be the world stage being set. And it seems very obvious that it is set right now for us. I mean, all this talk about a one-world government, check. Talk about a one-world economy, check. Uh, promotion of one-world religion, check. Unbelieving Israel in the land, check. Israel surrounded by hostile neighbors, check. I mean, there's just so many things that are in place right now for the rapture of the church to occur. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just expecting it literally any, any day. Um, so that's what is going on here. We're talking about this future time. But, but the church is said to be spared from this. That's what I'm getting at here. Now, Dr. Robert Thomas, and I had the privilege of meeting him uh, back in 2009. In fact, he was the keynote speaker at the Chafer Theological Conference down in Houston. And uh, he gave some very, very good lessons, and uh, I enjoyed some conversations with him. Uh, he's passed on now. He's, in the, he's been graduated to heaven. Uh, but Dr. Robert Thomas affirms this in his commentary uh, concerning the hour of trial. Uh, he says the hour of trial refers to the future period of trouble just before Christ's personal return to earth. Uh, now, when he talks about this personal return to earth, he's talking about Revelation 19, the second coming. The rapture and the second coming are two events separated by each other by the seven-year time period. At the rapture, it is Christ coming for his saints. At the rapture, it is Christ coming for his saints. And at the rapture, we will meet the Lord in the air. So Christ will come down to the earth, halfway point, and we will go up and we will meet the Lord in the air. And then we will go with him back to heaven. And so at the rapture, it is Christ coming for his saints. Now, in the, when you read Revelation 19, uh, it is Christ coming with his saints. Christ coming with his saints. And we're going to come back with him. We will come back. We will be riding on white horses. Uh, so don't worry. If you haven't had any horse training session, you'll get that in heaven. Uh, and apparently there will be horses there because we're going to come back riding with him. Again, quite an amazing thing. But that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the future period of trouble, uh, that is the seven-year tribulation, just before Christ's personal return to earth. That's the second coming. Charles Ryrie adds, he says, The promise of Revelation 3.10 not only guarantees being kept from the trials of the tribulation period, but being kept from the time period of the tribulation. He says, The promise is not, I will keep you from the trials. It is, I will also keep you from the hour of the trial. Uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, citing him again, and here I'm citing him from the footsteps of the Messiah. He says in this passage, talking about Revelation 3.10, he says in this passage, the church is promised to be kept from the period of trial that is about to fall upon the whole earth. In the context of the book of Revelation, it is the tribulation found in chapter 6 through 19. 
That is this period of trial that is about to fall upon the whole earth. It is from this period of trial that the church is to be kept. This verse does not say uh, that the church will be merely kept safe during the trial, but it will be kept from the very hour of the trial, that is, from the very time of it. And I think that that is the correct view. Now, there are some uh, some uh, Christians, it's, it's a small group, there's not many out there, but there are some, I've run into a few, who believe that the church will go halfway through the tribulation. Some believe that we'll go all the way through to the tribulation. Uh, and I kind of scratch my head at uh, some of their teachings, and I understand they have lines of reasoning, and I don't uh, want to make light of that, but I just I find it very difficult to go there. But there are some. There are some that do hold to that view. And, and they're certainly Christians, and they should be treated with love and respect and courtesy and, you know, have a civil theological discussion. Uh, no place for having a fist-in-your-face attitude. Too, too many Christians have that, and that's unfortunate. Uh, but going on in the notes here, we are said to be saved from hell. Saved from hell. So these are things that, again, we are said to be saved from. Now, Scripture reveals that we are saved from hell. Jesus talked about hell a lot. He did. He talked about hell a lot. In Matthew 10, 28, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In hell. Now, the word hell, uh, it translates the Greek word Gehenna, Gehenna, which appears uh, 12 times in the New Testament. And uh, according to the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology and Exegesis, you got to love some of these big titles on some of these uh, uh, books. Uh, and this is a, this is a, a very nice um, uh, dictionary. It's a lexicon, uh, but it's, um, it's called the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology and Exegesis. And according to this, Gehenna uh, means a place of fire, a place of fire. It's a place of burning. Now, biblically, it is a place of eternal torment. Moises Silva notes, and here I'm quoting from the same book, he says, Gehenna is elsewhere referred to by such phrases as the blazing furnace, the eternal fire, and the fiery lake. Gehenna is distinguished from Hades, which evidently houses the souls of the dead before the last judgment. Indeed, Hades, along with death, will be thrown into the lake of fire. End quote. But to understand that Gehenna refers to the place of, uh, of the blazing furnace, the eternal fire, or the fiery lake, it's what we understand commonly as hell. Now, hell is that final place of suffering where all unbelievers go. And uh, speaking to unbelievers at the end of the tribulation, in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, it's interesting to me because the lake of fire apparently was originally created, uh, the place of eternal fire was originally created for the devil and his angels. Uh, so it was originally created, and I would guess before the fall of Adam and Eve. Now, I can't be dogmatic on that, so uh, don't, don't, hold me, don't hold me to that. But it would seem that that would be the case. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, people will wind up in the lake of fire uh, because they have chosen to follow Satan there, because they are unbelievers, because they are part of his kingdom, 
And even though they have an opportunity to turn to God, they refuse to do so. And by their choice, uh, they choose hell, in effect. Uh, And then John tells us in Revelation 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, concerning hell, J.I. Packer, uh, another very good Bible teacher, I don't necessarily agree with his ecclesiology or eschatology, but otherwise, he's a fine theologian, um, and I had the privilege of meeting him, too, back in, I think it was 2004, Uh, But anyway, from citing him here, he says of hell, he says, It is thought of as a place of fire and darkness, of weeping and of grinding teeth, of destruction and of torment. In other words, of total distress and misery. If, as it seems, these terms are symbolic rather than literal, that is, fire and darkness would be mutually exclusive in literal terms, Uh, He says, we may be sure that the reality, which is beyond our imagining, exceeds the symbol in dreadfulness. He goes on, he says, New Testament teaching about hell is meant to appall us and strike us dumb with horror, assuring us that as heaven will be better than we could dream, so hell will be worse than we can conceive. Such are the issues of eternity which we need now, uh, which need now to be realistically faced. End quote. And that was taken from his uh, book, Concise Theology, A Guide to Historic Christian Beliefs. Concise Theology, A Guide to Historic Christian Beliefs. It's a nice little theology book. I like it. So those are areas where we are said to be saved from. And so again, we're talking about salvation. This is all under the heading of uh, soteriology. But now, uh, since we have a little bit of time left, I'm going to go ahead and jump into this next section here. Now, the question uh, is raised to me, what about those who never hear the gospel? Because that is sometimes brought up. What about people who never hear the gospel message? What about them? Well, let's jump into that. Now, someone might say, what about those who never hear the gospel message about Jesus? Are they condemned to hell? Well, let's back up and look at the big 30,000-foot view here. First of all, the Bible reveals that God is the judge of all the earth. He is the judge of all the earth. And according to Psalm 711, he is a righteous judge. And in Psalm 145, verse 17, he is said to be righteous in all his ways. This means that God is absolutely fair to everyone. And no one will go to hell who did not choose it. Let me be very clear on that. God is absolutely fair to everyone, and no one will go to hell, excuse me, who did not choose it. Now, God has revealed himself to everyone. In a general sense, he has made himself known through his creation. You see, knowledge of God's existence is clearly revealed through his creation. Uh, In Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, David wrote, he said, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So do you see what's going on here? The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And what are they telling? Well, they are declaring the work of his hands. In other words, when one looks at the creation one can realize that God exists. Because day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. 
So what that means is that God is declared and revealed through his creation, much like a painter is revealed through a masterpiece painting. The Apostle Paul wrote of God's wrath, which, was, which is revealed toward those who reject him after they come to know about him through his creation. Now in Romans 1, 18 and 19, Paul says, For the wrath of God, now this is the, the future eternal wrath of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, there's, there's a lot going on here, but one of the things that we need to be clear is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It is revealed. So God has revealed himself against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and notice, of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's no problem with the truth. There's no issue about the truth itself, uh, because at the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. And what we have here is we have people that go negative to God. When they come to the awareness that God exists, they say, okay, I don't want to know God. And at that moment, if they reject God, if they reject what light he has given, he's under no obligation to give them any further light. So these are men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So not only are they rejecting the external truth about God through the creation, but they're also rejecting the internal truth. Because Romans 1.19 says, because that which is known about God, not guessed at or hinted at or, or, or slightly uh, hinted at, that which is known about God. And listen, when I talk to an unbeliever or somebody who claims to be an atheist, I don't ever argue with them about their atheism because I know something about them. I know that deep down inside, they know that God exists. Now, they're suppressing that truth uh, to others, and they're suppressing that truth to themselves. Uh, but certain situations will, will, will make that uh, percolate up and spring back, uh, you know, and, and come out on occasion. In fact, I was having a conversation with somebody earlier about the common understanding that there is no such thing as a foxhole atheist. Because you put somebody in a war situation, in a life and death situation, and you put them in a foxhole where they're under enemy and friendly fire and they're afraid for their life, and you watch how quickly they recognize God and cry out to him. Uh, and so that issue about there are no foxhole atheists is true. And this is also true that for people that will stand before the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, because everybody who looks up there will know who that is. There will not be a single person who will look up there and say, now, who are you? Uh, because no one will answer that question or ask that question, because God is evident within them, uh, because Romans 1.19 says, for God made it evident to them. Now, there's nothing wrong with God's revelation of himself through his creation. The problem lies in people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Furthermore, God has made himself known within them, which means that each person with normal mental capacity, I'm not talking about people that are born uh, with intellectual deficit disorders, um, but people, each person that is born with normal mental capacity intuitively knows that God exists. In theology, we call this the sensus divinitatis. The sensus divinitatis is just simply a Latin phrase that means a sense of the divine. Uh, a sense of the divine. And it means that everybody has that internal knower, that knowing that God exists. 
Now, Paul continues his line of reasoning in Romans 1.20. He says, for since the creation of the world, notice his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Now, don't miss that. Have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. That's, that's the creation. Being understood through what has been made. Notice the final clause here. So that they... Uh, Now, the they here refers to those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, so that they are without excuse. Without excuse before who? Before God. You see, they they can't give an excuse. Now, those who reject God after becoming aware of Him at that moment are held morally responsible and are without excuse for their choices before a holy and righteous God who will hold them accountable. Robert Mounts, who is a fabulous, fabulous Greek scholar, uh, has many wonderful books on the Greek New Testament, a wonderful Greek scholar. He says, seeing the beauty and complexity of creation carries with it the responsibility of acknowledging the creator both as powerful and as living above the natural order. Disbelief, he, he goes on to say, disbelief requires an act of rebellion against common sense. It displays fallen humanity's fatal bias against God. Although the created order cannot force a person to believe, it does leave the recipient responsible for not believing. And that last statement there is is absolutely spot on. Uh, so again, he says, although the created order cannot force a person to believe, it does not. It does leave the response. It does leave the recipient responsible for not believing. Now, going on in my notes here, uh, what is fascinating is that three times it says that God gave these people over to their sinful ways. So God says, all right, uh, you want to go negative. You want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Uh, God is a perfect gentleman. He does not force himself on anybody. Now, he can and will restrain their sinful behaviors at time, and that is something he does. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe, so he keeps every... All sinners are on a leash. Satan's on a leash. Sinners are on a leash, too. Uh, But nonetheless, he gives them a modicum of freedom. And of those who are negative to, to God, three times it is written that he gave them over. Now, it says that he gave them over, Romans 1.24, to the lusts of their heart. In Romans 1.26, it says that he gave them over to degrading passions. And in Romans 1.28, it is said that he gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Now, once God permits a person to operate by his sinful passions, that person is given a measure of freedom to live as he wants, but not without consequence, both in time and eternity. Now, if someone is positive and wants to know God personally, then God will make certain that that person receives gospel revelation in order to be saved. If that person goes negative and does not want to know him, then God, who is no bully, will let that person go his own way, but will hold him accountable for his decision. For those who are negative to God and reject Him after coming to know about Him through His creation, that rejection is sufficient to condemn that soul forever. Let me say that again. For those who are negative to God and reject Him after coming to know about Him through His creation, that rejection is sufficient to condemn that soul forever. 
The only heaven they will ever know, if we can even call it heaven, is the life they'll enjoy in this world during their fleeting time on earth. But after they die, all unbelievers will suffer for eternity in hell, forever separated from God, with no hope of their situation changing. Quoting from Dr. Uh, Robert Yarbrough, he says, Jesus spoke repeatedly of the fire of hell and eternal fire. He urged his followers, fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. The double-edged nature of Jesus' ministry is well summarized in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. Those who reject God's righteousness become targets of his wrath. Uh, end quote. Now, going on in, in my notes here, those who spend eternity in hell are there by choice and not by chance. We must understand that. By the way, let me, let me go off track here for just a moment. When somebody goes positive to God, when somebody wants to know God, God will send gospel information to that person. God will send uh, special revelation concerning the death, concerning the person and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And uh, there are there, and it could be anywhere in the world. It could be somebody who's living in a jungle somewhere uh, that uh, is sending off positive signals. And that person who's living in total isolation, wherever he or she happens to be, it doesn't matter where they are on the planet. If they are sending off positive signals, if, if there's a green light in their heart and they say, okay, God, I, I know that you exist. I've, I've, I see you through the creation. I want to know you. God will then send gospel information to that person. Now, it could be any one of a number of ways. Uh, it could be that God raises up a missionary to go to some part of the world to get gospel information to that person. And that person will hear the gospel, and they'll believe in Christ. And they will be saved. So when somebody has that, those positive signals going off, God will get them that information. I heard, I've heard of people being saved by reading the Bible. I've heard of a guy who got saved while fishing one time. He found a, a gospel track uh, that was left uh, uh, wedged under a rock, and he saw it, and he opened it, he read it, came to hear the gospel clearly, and believed in Christ. I've heard of people being saved on the side of the road. I uh, heard a story of a guy who was having an emotional breakdown. His third business failed. He was looking at bankruptcy. Uh, he was having problems with his marriage, uh, with his kids. His whole world was falling apart. He was thinking suicide. He's sitting on the side of the road, turns on the radio, and begins to hear a message about somebody sharing the gospel of Christ, which he'd heard before, but he was hearing it here again. And the man responded. He, he, he came to faith in Christ. So there are people all over the planet that, are, that have green lights within their little hearts, and they're sending off positive signals, and God sees that. And God will get them gospel information. But for that person who goes negative, who doesn't want to know God, once they've come to that point of knowing him through the creation, if they begin to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, God will give them over. He will give them over. So we must understand that those who spend eternity in hell are there by choice and not by chance. Quoting from J.I. Packer again, he says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Those in hell will realize that they, sentenced, that, they, that they sentenced themselves to it 
by loving darkness rather than light, choosing not to have their creator as their Lord, preferring self-judging, self-indulgent sin to self-denying righteousness, and if they encountered the gospel, rejecting Jesus rather than coming to him. End quote. And that's exactly right. So they will see hell as a place that is self-chosen. So those who stand before the great white throne judgment, uh, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, will know that the one who is sitting on that throne, will know the one who is sitting on that throne, and they will know they are there to be judged for their sins. Again, not a single person will ask, who are you? For they will all know who he is and that they are there to face judgment for eternity. All this is avoidable if one will only acknowledge God and respond positively to the gospel of grace and believe in Christ as Savior. Uh, Because in order to be saved, one needs only to believe in Christ as Savior in order to avoid eternity in hell. And God has made a way for all to be saved, for all to be saved. So if any are not, it's by their choice and not because there was no divine provision available. Uh, And then in closing here, uh, when one turns to Christ as Savior, when one turns to Christ as Savior, the Bible's very clear. We have forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him, in him, in Christ, we have redemption. Now, redemption uh, means that Christ paid our sin debt. He paid our sin debt, and, uh, and so it has been paid in full. And uh, it says that we have redemption through his blood. So the shedding of his blood on cross, on the cross was the coin of the heavenly realm that God the Father accepts as payment for our sin debt. In fact, it is the only coin, it is the only currency that heaven will accept as payment for our sins. And so in him, we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of of our trespasses. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses. And, on, and, and when we have this, uh, this is according to the riches of his grace. Because remember that God is very, very gracious to us. He's very, very gracious to us. And uh, grace here uh, translates that wonderful Greek word kodis, uh, C-H-A-R-I-S, kodis, and it refers to unmerited favor or undeserved kindness undeserved kindness. And so it is that kindness that God shows towards us, as Romans 4, uh, 5 makes it very clear, uh, that he justifies the ungodly. That's us. That's me. That's you. That's all humanity because we're all lost in sin. But at the moment of faith in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. And so all of our sins are forgiven at the moment of faith in Christ. But we must not think of salvation as merely subtraction. It's not merely the subtraction of our sins. It's also addition, addition. And so we have uh, the forgiveness of sins, but we also have eternal life. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him uh, shall not perish, but have eternal life, shall have eternal life. Uh, John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. So when he says, I give, the word give translates the Greek word didomi, didomi. 
And it is in the present tense, which means it is a right now truth. He says, I give eternal life. And eternal life is not what you can have. It's what you have at the moment of faith in Christ. Now, it finds its fullest expression when you leave this world and enter into the eternal state. But eternal life is what you have at the moment of faith in Christ. And at the moment of faith in Christ, whoever that happens to be, uh, these persons have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But, if any, but, but the opposite is also true, as Revelation 20 verse 15 tells us, that if anyone's name was not found written in the Book of Life, uh, well, what happens to that person? Well, he is thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I, when I'm talking with people, when I'm talking with unbelievers, I, man, I, I just try to present the gospel to them in so many different ways. I, I don't want it to be for want of information. I, I make it very clear because I don't know who's positive. I don't know who's, and, and by the way, if somebody's negative today, they might be positive tomorrow. So the, the seeds that you plant of the gospel, you know, the seeds that you plant of the gospel uh, may come to life at the moment. It could happen 10 years later. It could happen 50 years later. But sometimes just that information that you impart at a time when they are positive to the Lord, assuming they ever reach that point at some point in their life, they will have information necessary that could lead uh, to the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and the gift of righteousness and having their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so, you know, I'm just... I'm just like a, a farmer. I'm just casting the seed out there. I'm just putting it out there. And wherever it lands, <clears throat> you know, whatever happens to it, well, that's between them and God. I'm responsible for output, not outcomes. I'm responsible for output, not outcomes. I, don't, I can't control uh, what happens uh, once that information is out there. All right, well, I want to thank you all for joining this evening and for taking the time out of your day to uh, gather together to study the Word of God. So let's go ahead and close it out with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can call you Father. And we call you Father for one reason and one reason only. And that is because Christ is our Savior. We know that at a point in time nearly 2,000 years ago, the second member of the Trinity came into the world and took upon himself humanity. And he walked among uh, mankind and he lived an absolutely righteous life and committed no sin. And he went to a cross and died a death he did not deserve in order that we might have a life that we could never earn. And because we have turned to Christ as our Savior, because we have believed in him and accepting as a historical fact of his death and burial and resurrection and ascension and believing in him and trusting in him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves to save us, uh, we are blessed with forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the gift of righteousness. And Father, we thank you for the blessings that you have bestowed upon us. And uh, we thank you that we can call you Father. And we pray that as we go forth, that we will be challenged by the things that we've studied tonight, that we might grow thereby. Father, we ask this now in Christ's name. Amen.